Chapter 1 of Rainy Week This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Glenn Coster, Jr. Rainy Week by Eleanor Halliwell Abbott Chapter 1 in the changes and chances of our New England climate, it is not so much what a guest can endure outdoors as what he can originate indoors that endears him most to a weather-worried host. Take Rollins, for instance. A small man, dour, insignificant, a prude in the moonlight, a duffer at sailing, a fool at tennis, yet... Once given a rain patter in a smoky fireplace of an audacity so impertinent, so altogether absurd, that even yawns must of necessity turn to laughter, or curses. The historic thunderstorm question, for instance, which he sprang at the old bishop's house party after five sweltering days of sunshine and ecclesiastical argument, who was the last person you kissed before you were married? A question innocent as milk if only swallowed, but unswallowed, gurgled, spat like venom from bishop to bishop, and from bishop's wife to bishop's wife. Oh, la! Yet that Rollins himself was the only unmarried person present on that momentous occasion shows not at all, I still contend, the slightest natural mendacity of the man, but merely the perfectly normal curiosity of a confirmed anchorate to learn what truths he may from those who have been fortunate or unfortunate enough to live. Certainly neither my husband nor myself would ever dream of running a house party without Rollins. Yet equally certain, it is not at all on Rollins' account, but distinctly on our own, that we invariably set the date for our annual house party in the second week of May. For twenty years, in the particular corner of the New England seacoast which my husband and I happened to inhabit, it has never, with one single exception only, failed to rain from morning till night and night till morning again through the second week of May. With all weather uncertainties thus settled perfectly, definitely, even for the worst, it is a comparatively easy matter for any host and hostess to stage such events as remain. It is with purely confessional intent that I emphasize that word stage. Every human being acknowledges, if honest, some one supreme passion of existence. My husband's and mine is for what highbrows call the experimental drama. We call it amateur theatricals. Yet even this innocent passion has not proved a serene one. After inestimable seasons of devotion to that most ruthless of all goddesses, the goddess of amateur theatricals, involving, as it does, wrangles with guests who refuse to accept unless they are assured that there will be a play, wrangles with guests who refuse to accept unless assured that there will not be a play, wrangles with guests already arrived, unpacked, Tubbed, seated at dinner, who discovers suddenly that their lines are too long. Wrangles with, guests already arrived, unpacked, tubbed, seated at dinner, who discover equally suddenly that their lines are too short. 
wrangles with. Guess who can't possibly play in blue? Wrangles with. Guess who can't possibly play in pink? Wrangles with. Guest who insists upon kissing in every act. Wrangles with. Guests who refuse to kiss in any act. It was my husband's ingenious idea to organize instead an annual play that should never dream it was a play, acted by actors who never even remotely suspected that they were acting, evolving a plot that no one but the Almighty himself could possibly foreordain. We call this play Rainy Week. Yet do not, I implore you, imagine for a moment that by any such simple little trick as shifting all blame to the weather, all praise to the Almighty, care has been eliminated from the enterprise. It is only indeed at the instigation of this trick that the real hazard begins. For a play, after all, is only a play, be it humorous, amorous, murderous, adulterous, a soap bubble world combusting spontaneously of its own effervescence. But life is life and starkly real, if not essentially earnest. And the merest flicker of the merest eyelid in one of life's real emotions has short-circuited long ere this with the eternities themselves. It's just this chance of short-circuiting with the eternities that shifts the pucker from a host's brow to his spine. No lazy, purring reunion of old friends this rainy week of ours, you understand. No dully congenial convocation of inbred relatives. No conference on literature, music, painting. No symposium of embroidery stitches, nor of billiard shots. But the deliberate and relentlessly planned assemblage of such distinctly diverse types of men and women as prodded by unusual conditions of weather, domicile, and propinquity, will best act and react upon each other in terms inevitably dramatic, though most naively unrehearsed. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. Very considerable psychologic, as well as dramatic satisfaction, is now at last ours, confess your humble servants. In this very sincere, if somewhat whimsical, dramatic adventure of Rainy Week, the exigencies of our household demand that the number of actors shall be limited to eight. Barring the single exception of husband and wife, no two people are invited who have ever seen each other before. Destiny plays very much more interesting tricks we have noticed with perfect strangers than she does with perfect friends. Barring nothing, no one is ever warned that the week will be rainy. It is astonishing how a guest personality strips itself right down to the bare sincerities when he is forced unexpectedly to doff his extra-selected, super-fitting, ultra-becoming visiting clothes for a frankly nondescript costume chosen only for its becomingness to a situation. In this connection, however, it is only fair to ourselves to attest that following the usual managerial custom of furnishing from its own pocket such costumes, as may not for bizarre or historical reasons be readily converted by a cast to street and church wear, we invariably provide the rainy week costumes for our cast. This costume consists of one yellow oilskin suit or slicker, one yellow oilskin hat, 
one pair of rubber boots, one dark blue jersey, and very warm woolen stockings. Reverting also to dramatic sincerity, no professional manager certainly ever chose his cast more conscientiously than does my purely whimsical husband. After several years of experiment and readjustment, the ultimate cast of Rainy Week is fixed as follows. A bride and groom, one very celibate person, someone with a past, someone with a future, a singing voice, a May girl, and a boar. Rollins, of course, figuring as the boar. Always there must be that bride and groom for the celibate person to wonder about and the very celibate person for the bride and groom to wonder about. Male or female, one brave soul who had rebuilt ruin. Male or female, one intrepid brain that dares to boast of having made tryst with the future. Soprano, alto, bass, or tenor, one singing voice that can rip the basting threads out of serenity. One young girl, so may blossomy fresh and new, that everybody instinctively changes the subject when she comes into the room. And Rollins. To be indeed absolutely explicit, experience has proved with an almost chemical accuracy that quite regardless of age, sex, or previous condition of servitude, this particular combination of romantic passion, psychic austerity, tragedy, ambition, poignancy, innocence, and irritation cannot be housed together for even one rainy week without producing drama. But whether that drama be farce or fury, whether he who came to star remains to sup, who yet shall prove the hero, and who the villain, who? Oh la, it's God's business now. All the more reason, affirms my husband, why all such details as light and color effects, eatments, drinkments, and guest room reading matter should be attended to with extra conscientiousness. Already through a somewhat sensational motor collision in the gay October Berkshires, we had acquired the tentative bride and groom, Paul Brinswick and Victoria Meredith, as ardent and unreasonable a pair of young lovers as ever rose unscathed from a shivered racing car to face, instead of annihilation, a mere casual separation of months, until such May time as Paul himself, returning from heaven knows what errand in China, should mate with her and meet with us. And to New York City, of course, one would turn instinctively for the someone with the future, at a single round of studio parties in the brief Thanksgiving holiday, we found Claude Killenworth. Not a moment's dissension occurred between us concerning his absolute fitness for the part. He was beautiful to look at, and not too young, 25 perhaps, the approximate age of our tentative bride and groom. And he made things with his hands, in dough, clay, plaster, Anything he could reach, very insolently, all the time you were talking to him, modeling the thing he was thinking about instead. Oh, just wait till you see him in bronze, thrilled all the young satellites around him. Till you see me in bronze, 
thrilled young Killingworth himself. Never in all my life have I beheld anyone as beautiful as Claude Killingworth, with a bit of brag in him. That head, sharply uplifted, the pony-like forelock swished like smoke across his flaming eyes, the sudden wild pulse of his throat. Heavens, what a boy! You artist fellows are forever reproducing solids with liquids, remarked my husband quite casually. All the effects, I mean. All the illusion. Crag or cathedral, out of a dime-sized mud puddle in your watercolor box. Flesh you could kiss from a splash of turpentine. But can you reproduce liquids with solids? Could you put the ocean into bronze, I mean? The ocean, screamed the satellites. No mere skinny bas-relief, mused my husband. Of the front of a wave hitched to the front of a wharf, or the front of a beach, but waves corporally complete and all alone, shoreless, skyless, like the model of a village and ocean rolling all alone, as it were in the bulk of its three dimensions? In bronze, questions young Killenworth. Bronze? His voice was faintly raspish. Oh, it wasn't a blue ocean, especially that I was thinking about, confided my husband, genially, through the mist of his cigarette. Any chance pickup acquaintance has seen the ocean when it's blue. But my wife and I, you understand, we live with the ocean. Call it by its first name. Oh, ocean. And all that sort of thing. He smiled out abruptly above the sudden sharp spurt of a freshly struck match. The, the ocean I was thinking of he resumed with an almost exaggerated monotone. Was a brown ocean, brown as boiled seaweeds, mad as mud under a leaden sky, seething, souring, perfectly lusterless, every brown billow-topped, pinched up as though by some malevolent hand into a vivid, vertigrous bruise. But however in the world would one know where to begin, giggled the satellites, or how to break it off so it wouldn't end like the edge of a tin roof. Even if you started all right with a nice molten wave, what about the last wave? The problem of the horizon sense. Yes, what about the horizon sense? shouted everybody at once. From the shadowy sofa-pillowed corner just behind the supper table, Young Killenworth's face glowed suddenly into view. But a minute before, I could have sworn that a girl's cheek lay against his. Yet now, as he jumped to his feet, the feminine glove that dropped from his fidgety fingers was twisted with extraordinary maliciousness, I noted, into a doll-sized caricature of a vamp. I could put the ocean into bronze, Mr. Deville, he said, if anybody would give me a chance. 
Perhaps it was just this very ease and excitement of having booked anyone as perfect as young Killenworth for the part of someone with the future that made me act as impulsively as I did regarding Ann Walter. We were sitting in our room in a Washington hotel before a very smoky fireplace one rather cross night in late January when I confided the information to my husband. Oh, by the way, Jack, I said quite abruptly, I've invited Ann Walter for Rainy Week. Invited whom? questioned my husband above the rim of his newspaper. Ann Walter, I repeated. Ann what? persisted my husband. Ann Walter, I reemphasized. Who's she? quickened my husband's interest very faintly. Oh, she's a woman, I explained. Or a girl that I've been meeting most every day this last month at my hairdresser's. She runs the accounts there or something and tries to keep everybody pacified and reads the darndest books. All highbrow stuff. You'd hardly expect it. Oh, not modern highbrow, I mean. Essays as body as novels, but the old serene highbrow. Emerson and Pater in Wordsworth, books that smell of soap and lavender, as well as brains. Reads them as though she liked them, I mean. Comes from New Zealand, I've been told. Really, she's rather remarkable. Must be, said my husband, to come all the way from New Zealand to land in your hairdresser's library. It isn't my hairdresser's library, I corrected with faint disparity. It's her own library. She brings the books herself to the office. And just what part, drawled my husband, is this New Zealand paragon, Miss Stolter, to play in our rainy week? Walter, I corrected quite definitely. Ann Walter. Wardrobe mistress, teased my husband, or she is going to play the part of the someone with the past, I said. What? cried my husband. His face was frankly shocked. What? he repeated blankly. The most delicate part of the cast, the most difficult, the most hazardous, it seemed best to you without consultation, without argument, to act so suddenly in the matter, and so, so all alone? I had to act very suddenly, I admitted. If I hadn't spoken just exactly the minute I did, she would have been off to Alaska within another 48 hours. Hmm, mused my husband, and resumed his reading but the half-inch of eyebrow that puckered above the edge of his newspaper loomed definitely as a sample of a face that was still distinctly shocked. When he spoke again, I was quite ready for his question. How do you know that this Ann Walter has got a past? he demanded. How do we know young Killenworth's got a future? I counterchecked. Because he makes so much noise about it, I suppose admitted my husband. By which very same method, I grinned, I deduct the fact that Ann Walter has got a past, inasmuch as she doesn't make the very slightest sound whatsoever concerning it. 
You can see no personal reticence in the world? quizzed my husband. Yes, quite a good deal, I admitted. But most of it, I honestly believe, is due to sore throat. A normal throat keeps itself pretty much lubricated, I've noticed, by talking about itself. Herself, corrected my husband. Himself, I compromised. But this Ann Walter has told you that she came from New Zealand, scored my husband. Oh, no, she hasn't, I contradicted. It was the hairdresser who suggested New Zealand. All Ann Walter has ever told me was that she was going to Alaska. Anybody's willing to tell you where he's going. But the person who never tells you where he's been, the person who never by word, deed, or act correlates today with yesterday? The here with the there? I've been home with her twice to her room. I've watched her unpack the Alaska trunk. Not a thing in it older than this winter. Not a shoe, nor a hat, nor a glove that confides anything. No scent of Ferbasalm left over from a summer vacation. No photograph of sister or brother. Yet it's rather an interesting little room, too. Awfully small and shabby after the somewhat plushy splendor of the hairdressing job. But three or four really erudite English reviews on the table. A sprig of blue larkspur thrust rather negligently into a water glass, and a man's blue larkspur in January, demanded my husband. How, how old is this, this Walter person? Oh, uh, twenty-five, perhaps, I shrugged. With a gesture of impatience, my husband threw down his paper and began to poke the fire. Oh, pshaw, he said. Is our whole dramatic endeavor going to be wrecked by the monotony of everybody being twenty-five? Well, call it thirty-five if you'd rather, I conceded. Or a hundred and five. Ann Walter wouldn't care. That's the remarkable thing about her face. I hastened with some fervor to explain. There's no dating on it. This calamity that has happened to her, whatever it is, has wrung her face perfectly dry of all contributive biography except the mere structural fact of at least reasonably conservative birth and breeding. A little bit abruptly, my husband dropped the fire tongs. You like this Ann Walter, don't you? he said. I like her tremendously, I acknowledged. Tremendously as a person, and tremendously for the part. I insisted. Yet there's something about it that worries you, quizzed my husband not amiably. There is, I said. Just one thing. She's got a broken tooth. With a gesture of real irritation, my husband sank down in his chair again and snatched up the paper. It was ten minutes before he spoke again. Is it a front tooth? He questioned without lifting his eyes from the page. It is... I said. When my husband jumped up from his chair this time, he showed no sign at all of ever intending to return to it. As he reached for his hat and coat and started for the door, he tried very hard to grin, but the effort was poor. This was no marital disagreement, but a real professional shock. I simply can't stand it, he grinned. 
Once prepared, of course, for a tragedy queen to sport a broken heart. But when it comes to a broken tooth, wait till you see her, I said. There was nothing else to say. Wait till you see her. Even with the door closed behind him, he came back once more to tell me how he felt. Oh, he shivered. Oh. Truly, if we hadn't gone out together the very next day and found George Keats, I don't know what would have happened. Depression still hung very heavily over my husband's heart. Here it is, almost February, he brooded. And even with all we've got, we're still short the celibate and the singing voice and the May girl. It was just then that we turned the street corner and met George Keats. Why, why the celibate of all persons? We both gasped as if in a single breath and rushed upon him. Now it may seem a little strange instead of this that we have never thought to feature poor Rollins as the celibate. To double him, as it were, as the celibate and bore. Conserving thereby, one, by no means an expensive outfit of waterproof clothes. Twenty-one meals, a week's wash, and heaven knows how many rounds of scotch at a time of imminent draught. But Rollins, though as far as anybody knows, a bachelor and imminently chaste, is by no means my idea of a celibate. Oh, not Rollins. Not anybody with a mind like Rollins. For Rollins, poor dear, would marry every day in the week if anybody would have him. It's the other people who have kept Rollins virgin. But George Keats, on the other hand, is a good deal of a fascinator, in spite of his austerity, perhaps indeed because of his austerity. Tall, lean, good-looking, extravagantly severe, 38 years old, and a classmate of my husband at college. Whether life would ever succeed or not in breaking down his unaccountable intention never to mate, that intention, physical, mental, moral, psychic, call it whatever you choose, was stamped indelibly and for all time on the curiously incongruous granite-like finish of his originally delicate features. Life had at least done interesting historical things to George Keats's face. Oh, George, cried my husband. I thought you were in Egypt digging mummies. I was, admitted George without any further palaver of greeting. When did you get back? cried my husband. And what are you doing now? And where are you going to be in May? I interposed with perfectly uncontrollable interest. Why, I'm just off the boat, you know, brightened George. A drink would be good, of course. But first, I'd just like to run into the library for a minute to see if they put in any new thrillers while I've been gone. There's a corking new book on Arch Cellars that ought to be due about now. On what, what? I stammered. Oh, well, fossil cats, you know, and all that sort of thing, explained George chivalrously. But of course you, Miss Deville, he hastened now to appease me, would heaps rather hear about Paris fashions I know. So if you people really should want me in May, I'll try my best, I promise you, to remember every latest wrinkle of lace or feather. Only, of course he explained with typical conscientiousness. 
In the museums and the libraries, one doesn't see just, of course, the... On the contrary, Mr. Keats, I interrupted hectically. There is no subject in the world that interests me more, at the moment, than mummies. And by the second week in May, that interest will have assumed proportions that... Shh, admonished my husband. But really, George, he himself hastened to cut in. If you could come to us the second week in May. May? considered George. Second week? Why, certainly I will. And bolted for the library while my husband and I, in a perfectly irresistible impulse, drew aside on the curbing to watch him disappear. Equally unexplainable, three totally non-concerned women turned also to watch him. It's his shoulders, I ventured. The amazing virility of his shoulders contrasted with the stingingness of his smile. Stingingness nothing, snapped my husband. Devil take him. He may, yet, I mused as we swung into step again. So now we had nothing to worry about, or rather no uncertainty to worry about, except the May girl and the singing voice. The singing voice, my husband argued might be picked up by good fortune at most any cabaret show or choral practice. Not any singing voice would do, of course. It must be distinctly poignant. But even poignancy may be found sometimes where you least expect it. Some reasonably mature, faintly disappointed sort of voice, usually lilting with unquestionable loveliness, just the side of real professional success. But where in the world should we find a really ingenious ingenue? They don't exist anymore, I asserted. Gone out of style like the teddy bear. Old ingenues, you see, of course, sometimes sweet and precious and limp as old teddy bears. But a brand new ingenue? Don't you remember the awful search we had last year? And even then... Maybe you're right, worried my husband. And then the horrid attack of neuralgia descended on poor Mr. Husband so suddenly, so acutely, that we didn't worry at all about anything else for days. And even when that worry was over, instead of starting off gaily together for the Carolinas as we had intended, to search through steam-heated corridors and green velvet golfways and jessamine-scented lanes, for the May girl, my poor husband had to dally at home instead in a very cold, slushy, and disagreeable city to be x-rayed, tooth-pulled, ear-stabbed, and everything but bertilland while I, for a certain business reason, went on ahead to meet the spring. But even at parting, it was the dramatic anxiety that worried my husband most. Now don't you dare do a thing this time, he warned me. Until I come, look around all you want to, get acquainted, size things up. But if ever two people needed to work together in a matter, it's in this question of choosing a May girl. Whereupon, in an impulse quite as amazing to himself as to me, he went ahead and chose the May girl all by himself. Before I had been in the Carolinas three days, the telegram came. Have found May Girl. Success beyond wildest dreams. 
doubles with singing voice. Absolute miracle. Explanations. Himself and the explanations arrived a week later. Himself, poor dear, was rather depleted, but the explanations were full enough to have pleased anybody. He had been waiting, it seems, on the day of the discovery, an interminably long time in the doctor's office. All around him, in the dinginess and general irritability of such an occasion, loomed the bulky shapes of other patients who, like himself, had also been waiting interminable eons of time. Everybody was very cross, and it was snowing outside. One of those dirty gray late winter snows that don't seem really necessary. And when she came, just a girl's laugh at first from the street door, an impish prance of feet down the dark, unaccustomed hallway, a little trip on the threshold, and then personified, laughing, blushing, stumbling fairly headlong at last into the room, the most radiantly lovely young girl that you have ever had the grace to imagine, dangling exultantly from each frost-pinked hand a very large, wriggly, and exceedingly astonished rabbit. Oh, Uncle Charles, she began, see what I've found, and in an ash barrel, too, in a... She blinked the snow from her lashes, took a sudden startled glance around the room, another at the clock, and collapsed with confusion into the first chair that she could reach. A very tall little girl she was, and very young, not a day more than eighteen, surely, and even in the encompassing bulk of her big coonskin coat with its broad arms hugging the brown rabbits to her breast, she gave an impression of extraordinary slimness and delicacy, an impression accentuated perhaps by a slender silk-stockinged ankle, the frilly cuff of a white sleeve, and the aura of pale gold hair that radiated in every direction from the brim of her coonskin hat. For fully fifteen minutes, my husband said she sat huddled up in all the sweet furry confusion of a young animal, till driven apparently by that very confusion to essay some distinctly normal-appearing, everyday gesture, she reached out impulsively to the reading table and picked up a book, which some young man had just relinquished rather suddenly at the summons to the doctors in her office. Relaxing ever so slightly into the depths of her chair with the bunny's noses twinkling contentedly to the rhythm of her own breathing, she made a wonderful picture, line, color, spirit, everything, of youth. Reading with that strange, extra inexplainable touch of the sudden little pucker in the eyebrows, sheer intellectual perplexity was in that pucker. But when the young man returned from the inner office, he did not leave at once, as every cross, irritable person in the room hoped that he would, but fidgeted around instead with hat and coat, stamped up and down, crowding other people's feet, and elbowing other people's elbows. With a gaspy glance at his watch, he turned suddenly on the girl with the rabbits. "'Excuse me,' he floundered, "'but I have to catch a train. Please, may I have my book?' "'Your book?' deprecated the girl. Confusion anew overwhelmed her. "'Your book?' Why, I beg your pardon. Why, why, P. 
Pink as a rose, she slammed the covers and glanced for the first time at the title. The title of the book was What Every Young Husband Should Know. With a sigh like the sigh of a breeze in the ferns, the tension of the room relaxed. A very fat, cross-looking woman in black satin ripped audibly at a side seam. A frail old gentleman, who really had very few laughs left, wasted one of them in the smoldering depths of his big, black-bordered handkerchief. The lame newsboy on the stool by the door emitted a single snort of joy. Then the doctor himself loomed suddenly from the inner office and started right through everybody to the girl with the rabbits. Why, May, he laughed. I told you not to get here till four o'clock. Oh, not May, I protested to my husband. It simply couldn't be. Not really. Yes, really, affirmed my husband. Isn't it the limit? But wait till you hear the rest. She's Dr. Braun's ward, it seems, and has been visiting him for the winter. Comes from some little place way off somewheres. And she's got one of those sweet, clear, absolutely harrowing boy-soprano type of voices that sound like incense and altar lights, even in ragtime. But weirder than anything, triumphed my husband. Oh, not than anything, I gasped. But weirder than anything, persisted my husband, is the curious way she's marked. M-marked, I stammered. Yes. After I saw her with her hat off, said my husband, I saw the mark. I've seen it in a few boys before, but never in a girl. An absolutely isolated streak of gray hair, in all that riot of blondness and sparkle and youth. Just as riotous, just as lovely, a streak of gray hair. It's bewitching, bewildering, like May itself. Now sunshine, now cloud. You'll write to her immediately, won't you? He begged. And to Dr. Braun, too? I told Dr. Braun quite frankly that it was going to be rather an experimental party. But that, of course, we'd take the best possible care of her. And he said he'd never seen an occasion yet when she wasn't perfectly capable of taking care of herself. And that he'd be delighted to have her come. Laughed my husband quite suddenly. If we were sure that we didn't mind animals. Animals? I questioned. Yes. Dogs, cats, birds, explained my husband. It isn't apt to be a large animal, such as a horse or a cow. Dr. Braun was kind enough to assure me. But he never knew her yet, he said, to arrive anywhere without a guinea pig, squirrel, broken-winged bat lame dove, or half-choked mouse that she had acquired on the way. She's very tender-hearted and younger than... Blankly for a moment, my husband and I sat staring into each other's eyes. Then, quite impulsively, I reached over and kissed him. Oh, Jack, I admitted. It's too perfect. Truly, it makes me feel nervous. Suppose she should roll her hoop off the cliff or or blow out the gas, chuckled my husband. 
So you see now our cast was all assembled. Radiant, runctious, impatient Paul Brunswick and Victoria Meredith for the bride and groom. George Keats for the very celibate person. Anne Wolter for the someone with the past. Claude Killingworth for the someone with the future. May Davies for the May girl and the singing voice. And Rollins for the boar. About Rollins, I must now confess that I have not been perfectly frank. We hire Rollins. How else could we control him? Even with a mushroom mind like his, fruiting only in bad weather, one can't force him on one's guests morning, noon, and night. Very fortunately here, for such strategy as is necessary, my husband concedes one further weakness than what I have previously designated as his passion for amateur theatricals and his tolerance of me. That weakness is seashells, mollusca, you know, and that sort of thing. From all over the world, smelling saltily of coral and palms, iceberg or arctic, and only too often, alas, of their dead cells, these smooth, spiky, pink, blue, yellow, or mottled shells arrive with maddening frequency. And Rollins is a born cataloger. What easier thing in the world to say then? Oh, by the way, Rollins, old man, here's an invoice that might interest you from a Florida key that I've just located. How about the second week in May? Could you come then, do you think? I'm all tied up to be sure with a house full of guests that week, but they won't bother you any. And at least you'll have your evenings for fun. Clothes? Haven't got them? Oh, pshaw. Let me see. It rained last year, didn't it? Well, I guess we can raise the same umbrella that we raised for you then. So long. Everything settled then. Everything ready but the springtime and the scenery. And God himself at work on that. Hist! What is it? The flash of a bluebird? A bell tinkles, a pulley rope creaks, and the curtain rises. End of this section. Recording by Glenn Coster, Jr.